Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and you know that old saying, it's 5 o'clock somewhere? Well, dear listener, I'm pleased to inform you that it's 5 o'clock on this podcast because you and I are about to get into some vino. Ian Asbury is with us on the pod today. Ian is the co-founder of Good Clean Fund, an absolutely bitchin' natural wine shop and bar in downtown LA. Natural wine has been on the rise for a minute now, but a lot of folks are still skeptical. How is it made? Is it real wine? Is it even any good? These are all questions we get into with Ian, whose passion for the form is, frankly, contagious. We also talk about his journey from dining at Olive Gardens in Beaverton, Oregon, to becoming a widely respected food and wine entrepreneur in our city of angels. But first, Father Saul joins us to break down Michelin's California Guide, which was released earlier this week. Once again, Los Angeles was low-key snubbed, losing two stars and gaining only one. We talk about what this says about LA, what this says about Michelin, and whether you as an eater should even care. We also spend a little bit of time talking about the LA Times' recent coverage of Mexico City. Daniel Hernandez published a nice little three-piece set on the changing face of the city and how to best enjoy it as a traveling Angelino. So what are you waiting for, dear listener? Get out a wine glass and grab the corkscrew, and without further ado, let's chow down. Joining us today in part one, it's the president of the Seattle chapter of the Kai Havertz fan club. It's Father Saul. How you doing today, Father Saul? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day in Seattle. This is peak Seattle hours right now. 85 degrees. There's some great new restaurants opening. I just had an A-plus tuna sandwich for lunch that I can't wait to show you. And hovering over it all is the fact that my favorite soccer team, Arsenal, signed this piece of trash Kai Havertz from your favorite soccer team. And I'll have to deal with that for the next, whatever, eight months. But aside from that, things are great. Drowning your sorrows in tuna sounds like the right approach. What makes a good tuna sandwich in your eyes? Well, obviously the quality and flavors of the salad and the particular uh, alchemy and recipe used to put together the base, but also the two other keys, which are key for most other sandwiches, but bread, I think is really critical. A A good toasted bread for a tuna sandwich, as well as, and I I knew this before, but this is the first place I've ever seen actually execute it on menu, potato chips. House baked potato the chips they put in the sandwich. Oh my God. Genius. Yeah. Genius. Absolute genius. Well, I'm, I've been disappointed in every single tuna sandwich I've had on the sandwich journey I'm on right now so far. Ooh. So I'm still waiting for a good one. I'll let you know when I find it. But before we dive into today's topic, I wanted to ask for your take on natural wine. Natural wine. Uh, (laughs) It's funny. It sounds great. Seems fine. I don't drink it really often. I don't seek it out. Uh, I've heard also that it's kind of a a chamois sort of deal. Like what? The pitch I've gotten on natural wine is, oh, removes the hangover. No like weird toxins in your wine. And it's so smooth and different. And I have some friends who are really interested and committed to natural wine as a movement, but I've also heard it's basically like a marketing gimmick. So why do you ask? I ask because today's guest that's coming on after you is a natural wine specialist. So, uh, you know, this has actually reminded me that natural wine, awesome. So, (laughs) so wonderful. I never drink anything else if I could avoid it. (laughs) <laughs> you could have given me a heads up. <laughs> no, that's, this is exactly why we had you on because you are basically the you know uh, the litmus test for what our listeners are like too. 
And there may be our listeners out there that feel the same way about natural wine. And, you know, our guest today, Ian Asbury, the uh, uh, co-owner, partner, I believe, of Good Clean Fun Wines Downtown, his job is going to be to convince everybody to give it a shot. And and let me tell you, I think he's going to be able to. So, yeah, no shade. I, I'm looking forward to Ian's pitch. I feel like I might be on the grumpier end of the spectrum than most of our listeners. I might be a, I might be more cynical, so I'll give our listeners that credit. I feel like natural wine is nice and popular, and I look forward to Ian answering some hard-hitting questions that I assume you will now ask. I will say that. When someone drinks as much as you do, I'm not sure there's any amount of natural wine that can save you from the hangover. So, uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Re- really, I'm just doing it wrong. That could be. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're the problem here, not the natural wine. <laughs> Look, speaking of another problematic matter, the Michelin stars are upon us, Father Saul, and a new California guide has been released. That's why you're here. You're, you know, you're pretty much the LA Food Pod Awards correspondent, and there was a little bit of controversy. So let me give you a rundown of how things went down. Los Angeles has only been included in the Michelin Guide since like 2019. So already there's a bit of baggage between Los Angeles and the Michelin Guide. But since then, there have been stars awarded and we have a few different two-star restaurants. Um, Those include Hayato, Melise, Inaka, Providence, and Sushi Ginza on Adera. And all of them maintained their stars in this particular round. And then we have a little, a, a nice little list of one-star restaurants. Those include 715, Camphor, Citrin, Gucci Osteria, Gwen, et cetera, et cetera. The controversy this year is that LA was awarded only one new Michelin star, and it was detracted two. Hatchet Hall lost its star and Phenakite also lost its star because it closed down, which seems fair. So all in all, LA netted out rather poorly. What do you think about this? Should LA should LA people care? I think they shouldn't. I think they shouldn't care. This goes back to some of our earliest conversations on food awards, which is what are we actually awarding here? What's the criteria, right? And there's a weird relationship generally between Michelin and Los Angeles, I believe, the former Michelin director stated that one of the, or just said out loud publicly that like LA people are not too interested in eating well, quote unquote, as a dismissal <laughs> of the food scene in general, which is wild. And which, I mean, look, it's notable that they left the city for about a decade, like like around or, or, or more possibly. Um, and then only recently started getting, getting stars. So there's a, there's a, a fundamental mismatch. I think between the ethos and whatever criteria of the Michelin guide and what LA has to offer. Now, it seems like, so that could be one base thing. And I should say one thing I'm curious about is actually eating at the two Michelin starred restaurants in LA to see how they compare to my other eating experiences in LA to just, I'm just curious to see like what they're doing there. But to, well, I mean, the short answer to your question is no, people shouldn't care. Fuck, fuck Michelin. Well, it's funny because out of all these restaurants in classic LA food pod fashion, we have not eaten at any of the two stars uh, on this list. However, I notice that. <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? Look, we we are the non-pretentious food podcast in Los Angeles. So we're we're of the people, you know. Um, we have however eaten at one of the one-star restaurants. I've eaten at a couple, but I believe you and I ate at one together, and that is Shibumi. We ate there 
a New Year's Eve, probably six, five, six years ago or something like that. And I don't remember a ton about that meal. What do you remember? Oh, we ate uh, fish sperm sacks. That's what I remember. Do you remember that? That's <laughs> and I was like, we, we, were, we were like, this is fish cum. And I was like, oh, I could totally tell it's fish cum. Don't love it. <laughs> hilarious for you too as someone who's mortally afraid of the ocean that that was the thing that you ended up eating to kick off your new year totally yeah getting facialed by cod on my dinner plate yeah not one of my most memorable meals i did notice that they took that off the menu dude i was looking at the menu right now and maybe seasons are at play but also maybe people weren't weren't enjoying the experience yeah, I also can't. I think they might have had a special New Year's menu going. I can't quite remember, but I'm guessing they were picking and choosing from existing items. It's supposed to be a delicacy. We shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't judge. Uh, Dude, fish sperm but... is delicious. Okay. I would get facial <laughs> fish any day. Like one of my things that I was served growing up and that I would take to school all the time was batarga, which is Italian fish sperm that's grated, that's dried and grated over stuff. And my mom would just grate it over pasta with a little olive oil and garlic, send it to me in a thermos. I would pull out this thermos, un- unflask the thermos, and it would just waft of like rank fish all through the <laughs> all through the classroom. I did not make a lot of friends, but I liked it. Does this explain why you wear lipstick and makeup every time you go in the ocean? You're trying to get lucky with some fish. <laughs> that 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 makes sense now. I see it. I see it. Waterproof makeup. Uh, sorry, Eric, we do, we're we're <laughs> off topic here. But Shibumi, Shibumi, yeah. So Shibumi has a star right in LA. Just not not a not a particularly memorable meal. And it also points to a trend that you you texted me about, which is I wonder why so many of these starred restaurants in LA are sushi and east asian cuisine it seems in some way shape or form yeah it's like it's either sushi or some variation of like california cuisine or french like you know there's like gwen cali to me it probably speaks to the fact that sushi lends itself to like the the eating experience of sushi lends itself to what Michelin inspectors are probably looking for in terms of that like super buttoned up dining experience where everything is super precise and replicated the exact same every time. The quality of the ingredients obviously has to be like absolutely paramount in sushi because if it's not, it's very evident. But also, I do think LA is widely recognized as the best place to eat sushi outside of Japan. So it may just also be a testament to the fact that LA is kind of a mecca of sushi outside of Japan. I actually don't think I knew that necessarily the the LA sushi mecca piece, but I, I think I think what's true is, and what you're onto here is not just the not just like the way sushi. I mean, well, look, I think it's easy to replicate the experience from from ingredients to vibe, to execution, right? To feel and presentation of sushi more consistently across the world and into LA. And I think essentially what we're seeing is that the best sushi in LA aligns to the kind of sushi experiences, the kind of uh, uh, way su- like the, the cuisine is articulated to you as it is in other parts of the world. So for Michelin, it translates. But I think LA is also well-known, not just in food, but in everything to really have its own perspective and own flavor and be innovative and push the envelope on food, right? It's a one of a kind sort of food scene in the world. 
And that's and when you get beyond like, you know, your typical fine dining French places and or high quality sushi, it really begins to, you know, take on LA cuisine, takes on a voice of its own that Michelin and I think a real and a real shortcoming to itself is unable to recognize and parse. And and again, from our very early conversations on this podcast to the one we had just had on on the world's fifty greatest fifty best restaurants list, it's it's the same thing over and over. Where when you look mm-hmm. at these international guys in particular, they don't seem to know how to translate or uh, evaluate American cuisine. And look, and particularly cuisines in a place like LA, which is of particular interest to this podcast. Um, and so that is what it is, I guess. What if we've just all misinterpreted the Michelin guide and it's actually just for French people? Like it's it's literally <laughs> just like a guide for French people leaving the country to be like, hey, here's how you're going to feel <laughs> most at home wherever you travel. <laughs> Michelin just going everywhere and being like, why do you care about this? It's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Why are you reading this? We didn't make it for you. I know. <laughs> we didn't even know we published it in the United States. Wait, yeah. wait, you try for these? Okay. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's. Yeah. I think you're onto something, man. I think of all the awards, this is the one people should give the least fucks about. For uh, sure, eaters, definitely. And look, this is absolutely no shade to the restaurants who strive to get one. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And if that's the game you're trying to play and that's what you're trying to achieve, kudos. You did it. It's the hardest thing you can do. It's like winning the World Cup in so- in soccer. It's it's the pinnacle of achievement. And so good for you. But as an eater, especially as an Angelino eater, yeah, it's like taking music advice from from a deaf person. No, I mean is that Jesus Christ? <laughs> wow! I mean, shots at Ludwig Van Beethoven. Good lord, man! Come on. <laughs> How should I rephrase that in a way that's better? Because it's not about someone who cannot experience the food. the 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 Michelin Guide doesn't choose bad restaurants, right? Like, let's be clear when they when they award stars, they I don't think we really quibble for the most part with their choices. Should we mean? we just talked about it might be might be either we had one meal at you movie i don't know i don't i'm not actually judging what what they're missing is it's like they're they only have one sort of framework for seeing the world right and the beauty of la cuisine in particular think about our experiences at at poltergeist or Moosecraft, right and you go or even something like heavy-handed where you're like oh i'm just in this like little like little neighborhood shop eating the best barbecue that I've had, including out of Texas, right? And it's in Lincoln Heights, right? I'm in I'm in uh, Boyle Heights and eating the best f- uh, fish tacos I've, I've ever experienced. And those are the things, like, I, I would almost say that, and in particular, right, Michelin, part of the judging, and a deep part of the judging based on my understanding is service, experience. It is sort of elite quality and luxury, Right. And one of the beauties of LA cuisine is you can have like the best of any kind of food in the world that you want in the most humble sort of circumstances that a, that a yeah. Michelin guide would not recognize, right? Or would not consider as worthy, which is, you know, it's their problem. And that's why they have the Bib Gourmand category, which LA yep. does have quite a few restaurants on that in California. And four new restaurants were added to that this year, including one of our beloved hangouts aka uh, via's tacos in highland park um also added was kobe's which is an exceptional restaurant 
down in uh, down in uh, Santa Monica on Main Street, uh, Carnes Asadas Pancho Lopez and Lincoln Heights, and Eat Joy Food in Roland Heights. Now, the thing about the Bib Gourmand is I think it has a different problem, which is just it's late to the game every single time. Like mm-hmm. it's you can get much better resources on where to eat and what to enjoy from sites like the infatuation or eater or the LA countdown. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you can, you can absolutely, you don't need the bib gourmand for that. It just feels like they are almost covering their ass so that they don't have, uh, they're not vulnerable to the criticism of, Oh, you guys are elitist. You only go for like really expensive restaurants. They have to include some more sort of like down home, inexpensive affordable options and that's how they do it but find me one person who goes to the bib gourmand to look for their restaurant recs one just one person that's right it's interesting you say that because it's both true that i don't think many angelinos or maybe even i'm sure some americans but at least many angelinos do do not go to the bib gourmand site to find local recommendations however when i go around to uh, moose crafts instagram or i was actually recently in brooklyn and went to a korean restaurant and they had their bib gourmand sticker in the window i think it's a nice recognition uh i think i think you're right that michelin isn't the trailblazing identifying force in the u.s they probably i don't i don't know what their staffing or structure looks like for a selection in the united states but I'm guessing they're just like not going that level of deep, but I think it is. So, so you're right that it doesn't have the cachet, but I think it's nice to give recognition to to some of those restaurants so they can say, Hey, you heard that, you know, that Michelin thing you heard about, we've been recognized by them a little bit. Yeah. Again, again nice thing for the restaurant. I think if you're a diner though, and you're looking where to eat in a new city, check out their local news coverage, like yep. check out their local newspapers uh, you know, if you're coming to LA, look at the 101 list. I mean, it's not a perfect list, but it's a much better, more current approximation of where to eat in Los Angeles right now. Um, or you can even look at the infatuations where to eat right now in Los Angeles. And that's probably <laughs> an even better approximation. So I don't know. It's again, it all, it again, all comes down to who is this for? But look, I don't want to piss in anybody's cornflakes. Congratulations to all the restaurants that made it. What? You've never heard pissing cornflakes? I've never heard pissing cornflakes. Does that did that happen to you? Is that where this comes from? Uh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I usually request it, but uh Jesus no, Christ. a lot of All right. for, for a lot of people, uh it means spoiling their fun, raining on their parade. Let's put it that oh, way. Oh no, I I figured that out from context clues and content clues. Thank you. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Glad glad we cleared that up. Look, I want to move to another uh instance of pissing in cornflakes, and that is the Los Angeles Times ongoing coverage of traveling to Mexico City as Americans. This was a story that I kind of was became big last year. Uh, it was wrote written about in the Los Angeles Times, also in the New York Times, essentially about this trend of remote workers moving to Mexico City for a short period of time or a longer period of time, and maybe not contributing to gentrification, although there's a little bit of that too, but really angering the locals, like the locals starting mm-hmm. to get upset with these sort of like transient folks just coming in, not putting down roots, kind of coming in and treating it as like a, a vacation, sometimes disrespectfully, and changing the face of their city by almost taking advantage of it, 
because for a lot of these remote workers coming from America, they were like, oh, it's a cheap place to go. We can, our dollar stretches further, et cetera, et cetera. So earlier this week or late last week, I forget, the LA Times is uh, Danielle Hernandez uh, posted a series of stories on this topic. And at first when I saw it, I kind of rolled my eyes to the back of my head because I was like, haven't we done this before? Haven't we already had this conversation? What are we doing here? But then I read it and I had some thoughts. Did you read the piece? I did read the piece. Um, I read all three pieces you sent me uh, this week from Daniel Hernandez, actually, including the tips for traveling to Mexico City and the restaurant recommendations. But I'm curious first for your response to the main the main narrative article here. Um, about whether or not Mexico City could really be gentrifying. Yeah. So, I mean, the main article is basically like, I think it's like, is Mexico City getting too cool for its own good, basically? And I read the headline and I was like, oh, here we go again. But I read it. And first of all, you know, you can't argue with the fact that Daniel Hernandez is an expert in Mexico City. He he lived there for a long time. You know, he clearly has a really good feel for the city and understanding of, you know, what makes it so special. And what I really appreciated about his article is how nuanced it was. So, yes, he brings up all of the conversations that are happening about the, you know, uh, remote workers going there and whatnot. But he's also careful to sit, to, to not accuse them of like sort of carrying the load of like gentrification. In fact, something uh, something in the story says something to the effect of like, in a city as big as Mexico City, that's not really the issue here. Like, there's plenty of places for people to live. You're not really dealing with displacement. Also, the neighborhoods where these uh, remote workers are going are not neighborhoods where you get displacement in the same way that you get when, you know, folks move to like a Highland Park or a Lincoln Heights in Los Angeles, right? You're basically displacing what they call white Texicans, the like sort of like, uh, higher social status Mexicans who live in these more expensive neighborhoods. And if anything, those are the ones you're driving up prices for. And I thought that was a really nuanced look at a topic that I think has been treated as a pretty black and white thing in the past. That softened me as a reader. And I really appreciated the perspective he was coming at it from, which is just basically saying like, yeah, change happens in a city. And uh, he's come to terms with the fact that more and more people are going there, that it's changing as well. And he felt it was the right time to sort of share his perspective of, Mex of Mexico City as well. And I, honestly, I felt like it was great writing. I felt like it was a very generous piece in that sense. It was very personal. Um, you know, I have my own personal beef with the LA Times, which maybe I'll talk about at some <laughs> point on this podcast, but not today. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the piece and it surprised me. Yeah, no, I think I think I, I think I I mainly agree here. I was I was smiling to myself when you were like, Ugh, another one of these, which come on, it's always good to know or have in a conversation about what, you know, yuppie millennial travel, how it's impacting other places. I'm always down for an article like that. So I was happy when you sent this over and you're right. I was surprised by kind of the nuance here that that Daniel pointed out. And even one of my favorite pieces points was kind of almost taking shots at the folks who had not taking shots at the folks who had started the conversation specifically about, you know, travel as remote workers gentrifying Mexico City, but a little bit like this city is huge. You think like you like we could transform it? Like 
like you think like we're like we're barely a drop in the bucket really we don't leave like three central neighborhoods the city is a monster right and so i appreciated that like check on like both like there's a check on i think it's more a conversation of like how americans travel and like how we comport ourselves and conduct ourselves and yeah i think it is interesting when a non-tourist city and he makes an interesting distinction between like cancun and mexico city right a non-tourist city that's not built for your every pleasure right it's just a city where people live and what does that mean for how how we go live there but i think he drew a really clear line where it's like look yes this is having impacts sure it's having probably less of an overall impact on this ever-evolving massive city than you might think and here are some good tips to be aware of. And, you know, if you want to go, here's what you should check out. Um, and here's here's why, like, there's so much more to explore than just Condesa and Roma, right? Uh, so yeah. I know I, 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 I like I liked this piece in particular. I like the timing of it coming back around to this conversation and giving it a little, especially after he'd gone back to where he used to live in the city, right? And explored it to, like, check on the reality, both, both, both like, the legitimacy and maybe areas where, uh, and non-legitimacy of the arguments um, that that remote workers were impacted by Mexico City. I personally, by the way, like, I think you can feel it. We were first into Mexico City. <laughs> we should say we we are travelers to Mexico City. We're fans, right? And we are certainly not out of like exempt from this conversation. I think from when we first visited back in 2015 to now, uh, well, last time I visited was 2021, I believe. Um, no, last year, 2022. Really, Mexico City? Yeah, yeah. We you came? Remember? I was one of the the nomadic workers who put down roots there. And you came to visit. What? <laughs> you don't remember this? Do you, we, I, this is the Wait, first time what? I met your girlfriend. Oh, you're right. Oh my god. Wow, that was okay. <laughs> oh that was a really god. rapid trip. Wow. Yeah, you're right. Jesus Christ. This is absolutely <laughs> embarrassing. Wow. This is, yeah. Wow. I know we drank a lot of Carajillos that one night, but oh my God, dude. You're totally right. You're totally right. Jesus. Uh, Look, I'm just so like natural in Mexico City and kind of like not one of these travelers you have to be concerned about given how comfortable I am. So it's probably why I I forgot. But yeah, but you can tell the difference was was giving me a brief point. I think you can tell, like you can see Americans. We went to, uh, I went to dinner in 2021 and I feel like here, like, I don't know, some like uh, woman with a valley accent from California complaining about her Southwest flight or something, right? You can so there there is that dynamic, and I I think that's something to acknowledge. It's like not that doesn't not exist, but Daniel's piece and his perspective, I think, was a really I think more complete understanding of of the conversation, and that was really cool. His some of his tips were weird to me though. <laughs> Traveling to Mexico tips like like what some of them I just like so. Uh, there was one where it was like, hey, yeah, every time you get up at dinner, say, uh, say buen provecho or provecho to someone nearby who is still eating, which means bon appetit. And I don't remember that happening either to me or around me or <laughs> or recommended by anyone, but I'm glad he does. He knows better. I'm sure people do that, but I don't I, know. If, I like, think that's uh, one of those or... like – that's like an advanced move. Like if you're advanced. Yeah. That then you can do that, and they'll be like, "Oh, damn, Gringo, Gringo knows what's up." And I, I also right. appreciated the like. I felt really bad because he's like, um, he talks about tipping, and he's like, tipping is often not included or something like that, and you have to specify when you're paying. That you you say con el quince, which is like with the fifteen, right, with the fifteen percent, <laughs> and you have to say that before they charge it, because otherwise they don't like give it back to you to like sign something, and you can add the tip. So. I was just thinking back on all the tips I forgot to give by not saying Conal Quince before. I, I am, if I 
do say so myself, a generous tipper and cannot remember not seeing a tip option added in Mexico City. But maybe I'm wrong. At a Daniel restaurant. Better. At a restaurant. At a restaurant. Right. But I, I mean, like, like a, at a coffee shop? Grabbing, yeah. When you're grabbing a coffee or maybe like a sandwich at a counter or something like that. Gotcha. Okay. That could, that could be fair. That could be fair. Uh, but yeah, the tips were, the tips article was weird because it seemed to range from like, hey, very basic, any traveler know this, um, to very like advanced moves advanced. like Gwen Provecho, to some that were like speaking to, it seemed like a Beverly Hills dad or something that was trying to plan a family trip and thought Mexico City was like the safe new Cancun or something like that. Yeah. So very, yeah. very wide ranging set of tips, but I'm sure all accurate. What did you think of the restaurant wrecks? I mean... The thing with restaurants in Mexico City, um, and it's similar to almost a place like L.A. or New York, uh, maybe even actually more so New York than L.A., where you just throw a rock and something's going to be good, right? Yeah. So it's a cool list. It's cool to have Daniel's list. El Huiquito's on there. We fucking love El Huiquito and their pastor tacos. Uh, I like to see Nombre as uh, inclusion because that was a place I really wanted to go, and I haven't had a chance I yet. I never went. Up, up high on my list of places to go there. Uh and Bosforo, I think the um, tequila or mezcal bar associated with Sinombre. But otherwise, it's kind of like, yeah, cool list. It has some of the classic stuff. It has some new stuff. But you're in Mexico City. You're just, like surrounded yeah. by good food so much that no list is going to be like comprehensive necessarily. Definitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually really appreciated the list. I mean, to your point, yeah. You can throw a rock and hit 15 different places. But I liked it because it was a good mix of like, tur- like not touristy places, but the places that you always include in the list, especially for first timers. Yeah. It's like, you didn't, did you really go to Mexico City if you didn't at least try Puyol or El Califa or Wiquito? Yeah. You know, like those are kinds of, or El Moro, the churro place. Like yeah. you kind of yeah. have to go to some of those places, whether they're the, the best or not, you have to. And I, I appreciate that he wasn't like above putting those places on his list. Uh, mm-hmm. As someone who lived there and knows like the actually good spots, right? But then he also included like you know his favorite like local cantinas um, that were in his neighborhood, but like sort of like uh, really more under the radar food halls and whatnot and marketplaces. I, I, he puts a big emphasis on, which I think is really important as well. Yeah, and that's why I really appreciated this entire series because it felt so personal, man. Like I feel like so many times when you see these lists. It's just people who have been assigned them by their editor to like go out and like, you know, visit the 30 best places on on somebody else's list and then refine (laughs) that list further, you know, and this one felt really personal by someone who actually knows what they're talking about. So I'm definitely excited to try some of this stuff next time we go. And you know what? Even willing to bury my beef beef with the LA Times for a little bit. (laughs) I'll do my best to remember our next trip there. I fully <laughs> thought you were messing with me. That was crazy. <laughs> I am absolutely shocked. How powerful were those Carajillos, man? I know we had like seven or eight, but damn. I feel like I feel like our trip to Cartagena might have like just been what wiped out my past year of travel also, just in terms of like, that's the thing that I remember. Where did you last travel? Cartagena. And it was fucking dope. The trip to end them all. Father Saul, any uh, final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Any uh, nuggets of wisdom? Uh, you know, I'll say this. I'm still thinking about the bear and listener. If you have not watched the bear season two yet or the bear at all, please get on that. I have like, I've, I've, I've listened back to your interview with Courtney, which was awesome. And to our conversation, even just to hear all like the, I was like arguing with myself about people I'd forgotten and takes I had, and I can't wait for season three. Please go watch the bear. I'm still on this. Oh, 
I'm assigning you some homework right now, live on the air, because everybody knows we do this podcast live. Uh, Secret Chef, you got to watch it. You told me about it, and yep. you got to watch it. David Chang's new show on Hulu. I've I've heard mixed reviews, but I want you to watch it so that we can talk about it on this podcast. So please go home. I'm, watch looking, it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Listeners, feel free to join us on this homework. Secret Chef, uh, a food competition show from David Chang. Dave Chang on Hulu that tries some new things out. Seems like they may not have been super successful entirely, but I'm super curious. So yeah, let's watch it. Let's talk about it soon. I heard him advertising it on his podcast as like, this is good for kids, which seems like the Hail Mary when your show isn't doing well, you know? <laughs> yeah, next time you want your kid to shut up, just pop them in front of my show and go do your own thing. <laughs> yeah, and maybe so give them some, like- So I can get some ratings, a rating spot yeah. here, please. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, thank you very much. We'll be right back with Ian. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you came thirsty to today's podcast because we are joined by co-founder of Natural Wine Shop and Bar, GCF, aka Good Clean Fun in downtown Los Angeles. It's Ian Asbury. Ian, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm I'm doing awesome. I, I really can't complain. I haven't had enough wine yet today. Uh, question for you when is it too early to start drinking uh well there's there's uh legal and there's uh not so legal and so um technically you know in the state of california you're supposed to wait till 6 a.m to oh, start okay good to know what if you <laughs> what if you've just been going all night yeah i think you just kind of keep going yeah until yeah. you just decide to kind of stop whether that's voluntary or involuntary yeah, no, I like that. I like the way you think. What are your uh, LA stomping grounds, Ian? Ooh, stomping grounds. You know, to be honest, a lot lately is just kind of hikes, to be honest. Literal so, stomping grounds. Mm-hmm, stomping away in the bushes and the trees. Um, I live downtown, and so sometimes it's really nice to get out of, out of downtown. What are your favorite hiking routes? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, we've been just trying them all, but there was one that was in Altadena that was pretty rad. I saw three different deer. I saw a big ass snake. Um, there's stuff happening. What do you do when you see a snake? Do you, I would run away, uh, personally. I'm not sure what you do. Oh, I'm the guy that gets closer and just uh, amazed because I live downtown, so I don't get to see that very often. And so, uh, I, I don't know. I, I just stand and stare. Yeah, no, totally. I do that when I when I people watch sometimes, but it tends to scare people. Uh, sure. Then again, you are uh, someone who grew up in a place that was a little bit more green. You're from Oregon, is that right? Correct. Yeah, originally from Portland, Oregon. Grew up in yeah. Beaverton, little suburb. Oh, nice. Is that where Nike is headquartered? That is, yes. And I did work for Nike in, in my early days. No way. So you weren't always a food and wine guy? No. No. What was your genesis? What what called you into this crazy world? Dude, you know what's crazy is that so in my early 20s I was um throwing, you know, parties and and doing the whole, you know, nightclub kind of thing and I you know, you start kind of whining and dining, you know, your friends or or clients and stuff like that. And I started going to really nice restaurants. And then at that time I'm like, wow, this is a lot different than when I grew up, right? With your um cheesecake factories and your uh, pf changs and olive gardens right yeah 
Um, and so I started kind of getting interested and I was like, this is kind of dope, you know, like when you're dining at really nice places and just the feeling and the type of food. And then I got um, wind of the book Omnivore's Dilemma mm -hmm. by Michael Pollan. And so I kind of wanted to start reading and expanding my horizon, you know, my, my knowledge of things. And I read that book and it completely changed everything for me. No way. What about it? I just didn't. You know, I grew up in a suburb in Oregon. I didn't really know much about food and what it was and where it came from. And um, uh, so through that book, I really got to understand where food came from and how mm -hmm. and the importance of it. Um, and so through that, I just, boom, mine got blown after that. And I was like, wow, I actually, now I understand why farmer's markets. And now I, I'm understanding of these things now. And, and yeah, I just got super obsessed. And your obsession started more recreationally, or did you, or did you switch professions right after reading the book? It was more personally because I didn't mm -hmm. know this was my early twenties, so I didn't really kind of figure out how to kind of maneuver in that world professionally. Um, but yeah, personally, I started going to farmers markets, eating a lot better, paying paying a lot more attention. And so you were still in Oregon at this point. At what point did you hear the clarion call? to come to Los Angeles. And what was that clarion call? So I was a managing partner of a bar in Portland. And within, I believe, about a year's time, we got fined by the fire marshal about nine times. That's a lot. That's a lot. What, were you, <laughs> yeah. uh, what was going on? Fireworks? <laughs> so I had originally worked at bigger nightclubs. And during this period of time, taking over this bar, they, it would only hold about 60 people. But, you know, you have 200 people outside and I pretty much knew every single person. Um, I don't want them waiting right outside. It does me no any good. So basically we would just kind of, uh, 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 you know, overcrowd the space and and uh, fire department got wind and then they find us again and we kept doing it again <laughs> and again. And, and uh, so at that time, they basically said, if you guys don't stop, then we will have to shut you guys down. And so we kind of flipped the concept. And at that particular time, I, I was kind of, I, I knew I had to go to a big city. Um, I think I was, I, my personal time and, and profession was kind of done with Portland. And so LA, New York was in the cards and decided I, want, I wanted to do the sun and go much closer. So LA, I think this was in my late 20s. Yeah. So at this point you had already made the switch. Um, is it from Nike into the, into the bar world? And you decided I can't be doing this here in Portland anymore. I need something bigger and Los Angeles is the right one. Am I, it, am I on track with the timeline? Totally. And this is in my twenties and I was, my thought process was a lot different at the time, but I understood if I was going to open up a business internationally, um, mm -hmm. Los Angeles would have a much, um, kind of bigger uh, draw. Like you could go pretty much anywhere in the world right now. And you said Los Angeles and everyone's like, Ooh. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like, that was a reason actually as silly as that sounds. And did and you, did you move here with the idea of starting your own business or were you just going to move down here and see what happens? It was basically in combination yeah, like I knew that I, it was a little hard to be working uh, for people when I had a certain kind of vision about things. Uh, but then at the same time, I knew that 
um, I'm coming into an already operating big city. Um, I didn't matter. And so I kind of knew that I had to sort of kind of maneuver the waters um, to eventually do my own thing. So what did you do when you got here? I started working in a restaurant uh, 10 days after I arrived. And then I wanted to do something on the side. I knew that night, you know, nightlife was not going to be an option because I didn't know anyone at all. So I knew that farmer's markets were actually kind of a big deal in LA. And mm -hmm. I started a food concept at the Brentwood farmer's market. No way. Which one? It's called cheese us and where we did hot cheese sandwiches. No way. Yeah. My, uh, my now wife lived in Brentwood and that was our farmer's market of choice. So we, we walked by Jesus a million different times, had no idea. Crazy. I was talking, talking to the business owner right here. How did yeah. you get the idea for that? Um, I was just researching what kind of prepared foods I think, uh, were kind of popular that could be easily executable. And I knew that pizza was really having a strong moment. Um, and so when you think about, you know, kind of grilled cheese sandwiches, gourmet version, it's essentially sort of a pizza sandwich. I have never thought about it like that, but now I will never be able to look at grilled cheese sandwich another way. <laughs> kind of crazy if you think about it. I mean, it's essentially just like a lot of maybe a more Italian style, but noodles, cheese, toppings. And that comes in sort of different forms. And so we took the sandwich form. That's amazing. So how long did you, how long were you popping up there at the, at the Brentwood farmer's market? Yeah, that had to be, man, I assume maybe a year to two years. And the reason why I did it, because it was an easy way for me to start networking with people. Mm -hmm. I have my own Smart. business. I, I'm, I'm here. Come check it out. Blah, blah, blah. So through that, I got to actually meet a lot of, a lot of people. And then I expanded to other farmer's markets and then we started out at Smorgasburg, um, where we are actually operating still today. Jesus, you can still get a Jesus sandwich at Smorgasburg, huh? Totally. Uh huh. Uh -huh. That's amazing. So you own multiple businesses at this point. At what point and how did you catch the wine bug? Man, okay. So I knew I wanted to get, now I've kind of built up a little network and I knew I wanted to get back into the alcohol side of things. Um, kind of a funny story, but I was, you know, having a great time for five to six years at tequila and mezcal were involved in that fun. Uh, we, nice. reached a, yeah, we reached a point where it was a little aggressive and I knew I had to kind of like slow the brakes on that. Um, I was um, not drinking for a week. I went to Everson Royce bar in the arts district mm -hmm. and I had a mocktail. I was there for a friend's birthday and I immediately hated it. And I was just angry about this. And I was like, I'm never not drinking. So how do I do it in the most responsible way? And so as you can imagine, we're going down the beer and wine route because lower ABV. And then natural wine was kind of having a little moment here in LA. I tried some, had no idea. It was almost like back in the day when I was uh, dining at these really nice restaurants in my early 20s. And my mind was like, dude, I had no idea. And so natural wine, same thing. I was like... I drank shitty wine, you know, in my twenties, two buck chucks to your just grocery store wine. So now slap when I had, yes, yeah, slap plenty of bags, slap bottles, you know, slap it all. 
Um, and, you know, once I, I tried some, I was like, boom, this is it. Wow. And uh, so I got to ask because I remember when I first started dabbling in natural wines, it was with my wife and she had heard that you get less aggressive hangovers with it. And that was a big draw for her. Was yeah. that part of your, was that part of your attraction as well? Huge. It was crazy. Cause in all of my twenties, I have never even experienced a hangover, even though I was drinking, you know, pretty excessively, I was either fine or I was still drunk to be completely honest from the previous <laughs> night. So in my thirties, this was, maybe I was like 32, 33, I got a really bad hangover that I've never experienced before. And it was really bad. And I was starting to kind of get them and it's not very fun at all. And now I understand from my other friends who I would laugh at and be like, what's wrong with you? Come on, let's go. I now understand that those hangovers are real and they can put you out for a while. Yeah. What was, how bad are we talking here? Like can't, can't see light, can't get out of bed or what? Yeah. Can't get out of bed for the day. And I've, and that's never ever happened to me. And so that was not fun. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, how can I keep drinking, but avoid the hangover? And exactly. what was your, what was the first natural wine you tried? Do you remember? I don't remember the exact, but what comes to mind subject to change there in California, Alex is the winemaker and then beachy down in Tecate, Mexico. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And for people who don't know who are listening to this podcast, what are we talking about when we talk about natural wines? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole slew, uh, but we'll keep it as easy as possible. It kind of comes down to two different things. One is everything that's done in the vineyard. Um, it's at least organic. There's no sp spraying of chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, any of that. And then the winemaking side, um, they're, you know, using native yeast um, and, you know, minimal intervention. Most of the time, I think a lot of people explain nothing added, nothing subtracted. Um, but some people do add a little sulfur at bottling to help kind of preserve the product, especially if it's in big boats coming from Italy and France. And we got to make sure that the wine is stable and doesn't kind of get too funky, too weird. Let's say that somebody is producing a bottle of wine that has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years that people maybe don't think of as a natural wine, right? Let's say it's just a Cabernet Sauvignon or something, right? Sure but they produce it organically, sustainably, and whatnot. Are they allowed to call it natural wine? Okay, technically, they can because there is no proper... Like, right, for example, if you, if you officially want to put organic, there's a certification, there's different levels, right? Whether that's just organic or you have to actually say 100% organic, um, there's, there's processes for that. There's not a process for natural wine, um, but... The good thing is that there's enough information out there, whether that's from winemakers, wine reps, um, that are either helping you clarify who is doing actual natural wine and maybe exposing the people that are not. Interesting. Yeah. It was, uh, do you think that we'll ever get to a place where there will be like a natural wine designation the same way that we have organic and you know other sort of labels for food? I think the the more that the bigger companies do get involved, then yes. But I think everyone, you know, everyone else, all the small producers, they're not interested. They don't want to 
when you go in that direction, there's usually a group of people and they start charging for that and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of these winemakers, they're small producers, they're natural wine producers. They don't care. We're natural wine, take it or leave it kind of approach, you know? Yeah. Goes against the yeah. spirit of it in a way. Yeah. Well, I lost track of the conversation delving down the natural <laughs> wine uh, rabbit hole, but take me to where you're a cheesist now, smorgasburg. At what point are you like, I'm going to start my own natural wine business? Yeah, this happened in 2019. I was like, all right, I want to get back into the alcohol side of things, um, but how do I do this and how do I do it? I don't have a proof of concept yet, so how do I do this a little bit less risky? Um, and so, you know, obviously in Paris and there was a teeny trend happening, right? There was in New York, a couple different areas in America where these coffee shops were serving wine at night. Mm. And so I was like, huh, interesting. Okay. What if I was to partner up with a coffee shop? They are, the, the infrastructure is already there. Um, how do I partner up and then basically start growing the brand through there uh, with kind of less less money right and we start kind of testing the proof of concept um and yeah that's kind of the the beginning so i approached a really cool coffee shop located in downtown la called cotting Cinti coffee i literally mm-hmm. all i said was you pay rent 24 7 let me be a wine bar at night that's so brilliant my uh my father-in-law says that all the time why would you ever have a business that completely quote unquote like leaves uh unused certain hours of the day when you're paying for rent all that time. So were they, I'm assuming they were pretty receptive to it. Did they have any sort of like reservation? Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, it's, it's, um, you're getting in business, you know, with someone in a partnership. Um, and it's almost like having a roommate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's sometimes it's really easy and there's a lot of pros there. And, and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult just because maybe some personality kind of differences. But overall, it's been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they had to see if you're the kind of roommate that takes out the trash, if you do the dishes, you know, that all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. They, you know, here's kind of a, a young man approaching and and uh, I've never done a wine bar and and it was kind of a a little risk for them as well you know to to um let us kind of try this out uh in their space and and i thank them obviously you know so much for for allowing us to do that so that's how good clean fun was born and this this is 2019 and the concept at the outset sounds like it was a wine bar how has the concept evolved since then and what can people find when they go to good clean fun today totally so we um it's crazy we ended up signing a deal in january of 2020 applied for the liquor license the week before lockdowns Hmm. and crazy timing and it and obviously in my head i'm like what is going on oh my god what's happening we're screwed well it was great because during the covid you know it took about a year to get the 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 license because of delays and stuff like that, because no one was at work. I got to basically scan America and find out who's doing what and who's be, who's uh, become successful, right? Mm-hmm. That's people were developing retail concepts within the restaurants. People, the delivery got big. Uh, having uh, in-home experiences 
um, those kind of things. And so it through that time period, when we opened uh, March 21, I felt a lot more confident about opening. Mm -hmm. and so we through that, we basically developed a big patio outside and then we started a retail concept, which it's a blessing in disguise because initially I wasn't thinking. Yeah. And how do you go about selecting the wines you work with? Oh man, there's a whole slew of this. Okay. Um, wine reps come by, they taste me on things. Yeah. I see what's going on, on, on the, you know, the internet and seeing what's trending or being talked about. I ask for recommendations for the wine reps, um, business partners involved. Um, and something that we are actually working on is having AI help us a little bit. Whoa. Okay. Now you're about to break my brain. How do you, <laughs> how do you do that? Just like type in chat GPT, what natural wines should I serve at GCF? <laughs> so essentially we have to develop a program that understands um, basically our inventory, what the reps have and what is trending and it learns what needs to be reordered, what needs to be discounted, all those things to make the most, um, you know, this, the smartest um, kind of wine buying approach in unison with us. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the key of, it seems like good AI right now is how does the actual user you put it into play, right? To, to get the most out of it. So, uh, are we going to be seeing it like a wine, a wine maker's strike coming soon? The, like about getting <laughs> the AI out or what? The easiest way to explain this is when ATMs were introduced in the 60s and 70s to the banks and the bankers were like, oh my God, we're getting replaced. Um, no to ATMs. But what it did was it basically started changing the banker's role. Hmm. So instead of maybe handling all the cash, maybe they could now focus on the business banking, relationship building. And for the bank as a company, they were like, okay, we get to um, have less employees in one location, but we get to have more locations. So they actually end up hiring more people, hmm. but now you have a lot more locations. So it could be less people in one location, but it's more people in general. So you can kind of see where this is going for Good Clean Fund possibly. It's very interesting. It, it sounds like I feel like with natural wine in general, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a young man's game, but certainly like it's, it's a new, it's sort of the new fangled, hot, shiny thing in wine, considering that wine is something that has existed for literally centuries, right? Do you have, do you face resistance from the rest of the wine community just in general, not just when it comes to AI, but with people maybe, I don't know looking down on natural wine as lesser or something like that. It's crazy because I have this wine rep, his wife won't drink natural wine anymore. And it's hmm. kind of like, wait, what? It's funny because you're seeing a teeny backlash happening in the natural wine community right now, um, or from the customers per, for ankle, that it's just too crazy. And those customers aren't understanding that I would almost call it like two things. There's natural wine and then natty wine. 
and mm. it's the natty wine that they're not really liking, right? The stuff that has the VA in it that's too crazy, funky, weird, um, that they believe is not wine. But they don't understand that there's so much natural wine out there that's done in the kind of the old school manner and, and the classic style. Yeah. So it comes down to misunderstanding a little bit. Correct. Yeah. I, I think that we can do a better job of explaining to people, like, like is it – do you want kind of the old classic style um, or do you want something fun and funky and crazy? And, and wine to me is all, all phases, right? Sometimes you want the funny, the crazy stuff. Sometimes you want the classics or classics for a reason. Um, and so I think we can do a better job with that because ultimately I think everyone, a hundred percent of people should be drinking a hundred percent of natural wine. It's just a matter of, of, of getting your hands on the right ones. It's funny because beer for a long time has had you know the craft varieties the very funky varieties you know i went to dinner the other night uh, or a couple weeks ago at animal one of the first the few like last nights before it closed and i had this like i want to say it was it was a korean lager that was pretty much just milk like it came out and it was like a sweet oh. milk do you know what i'm talking Mo about makali that that's it that's the one and i had it and did I love it? No, I'd probably never order it again in terms of having it with a meal. I'd probably sip on it slowly, right? But I I lived, I learned, and I feel like it was like an enjoyable life experience for me to do that. Mm -hmm. And with beer, there's almost like an acceptance that that happens. But wine, I, is it just because it's it's such a... Uh, there's like sommelier school and all this like sort of like uh, rigid bureaucracy almost that goes along with it. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why maybe there's a little bit more resistance? What it is, is it's still wine and wine is always snobby and it doesn't matter what aspect <laughs> you are in the wine realm. It doesn't matter if you're doing the crazy stuff and you're a punk rocker, guess what? You're snobby about other wine. And so yeah. I think that's, that in itself is part of it. But um, I think that maybe there's just a lot of opinions happening here when I believe this is the, the brilliance in capitalism. Let the customer decide. If this is what they want to drink, um, let them. And, and that's okay. I, I dealt with a customer. This was about a year ago. Big conversation. And um, his thing was like, he hates natural wine. I'm like, what? That's, what are you talking about? Um, and then I pointed to these kids, we, we looked at these kids and they were drinking some crazy stuff. And he was like, yes, that's not real wine. And I'm like, okay, technically it is. It's just wine that you don't actually prefer, but we should all celebrate here, even though this is not what you would like. Um, it's great that they're actually drinking natural wine and not conventional wine and two buck chucks and those kind of things. And so sure, the wine can have a little flaw in your opinion, but it's still so much better than a lot of these kind of grocery store wines out there, you know? Yeah, totally. So for folks who maybe haven't been introduced to the natural wine world before, but are interested in getting into it, what would you recommend they start with? I think they go to a natural wine shop that has a fairly large selection and broad selection. This is kind of what we br uh, pride ourselves in. Um, it, it, and we have the, the classic stuff and then we have the funky stuff. Um, and we offer flights as well. 
So this allows you to basically sort of start trying things and explore the world instead of always just kind of, and we're a bar as well. So even glasses. So you could start kind of, you can come and taste things instead of maybe some of these other wine shops where you show up and you have to commit to a full bottle and you don't know what it tastes like. Um, and so I think hopefully, you know, the model from not just us, but other people in general will start, start being more of those shops and bars or even those shops that they're having tastings fairly often, go to a wine shop during a tastings. You'll start trying some stuff out. And, and even if it's something that you don't like, at least you get to sort of cross things off. Be like, okay, I tried that, whether that's a particular grape or a particular um, winemaker. Um, and you're like, yes, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to buy this. Whole, I'm going to buy a bottle of wine from them because I, I did enjoy this. And now um, the risk is gone because I've tried it and now I want it. Or be like, okay, I'm going to stay away from this winemaker um, because I just didn't didn't really like it, you know. And then I'm going to try it in a different one. Yeah, it's trial and error. Like like me with the uh, Korean Korean uh, lager. What did you call it again? <laughs> uh, Makali. Makali. There you go. And for you too, the great thing about Makali was that it was in a 12-ounce can, I assume. Yeah. So you I, you didn't take a big risk there. You're like, all right, we're going to try it out. Guess what? Maybe it wasn't your favorite. Um, but if you're committing to a full bottle of wine sometimes, that's a bigger commitment. Yeah, both quantity-wise and price-wise, totally. So it's a great exactly. point. What wines are you most excited or really exciting you right now? What are you What are you looking forward to drinking? Wines are all phases, you know, it depends on sometimes the, the year and the situations, but I'm just obsessed with like Lambrusco's right now. Um, I had a rosé version of Lambrusco, you know, a couple months ago, um, mm -hmm. just sparkling red. Um, I'm surprised it's not more common, but absolutely delicious. Gives you the fruit plus the dry and it's bubbly, but it's red. It's great. Why do you think it's not more more popular i would actually have really have no idea but yeah. maybe it's because when people do want red wine they want something that may maybe matches with dinner or steaks or something like that oh maybe also too because when you think about the the world of red wine pinos and cabs and tempranillos and the 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 spectrum is massive now when you say sparkling red Everyone would be like, okay, Lambrusco, but is there like others? Mm -hmm. Like we, we that so maybe it's because the world of sparkling red is just really small from what the majority of people understand. Well, I've noticed mm -hmm. that a lot of LA restaurants have uh, really embraced natural wine in their programs, and some are doing it really in ways that is catching even nat national attention, like Anna Jack uh, mm -hmm. over in uh, the Valley. There's uh, you know, I think Night and Market has been doing it for a while. I'm curious, are there any programs out there that you have? I mean, I'm I'm assuming you have admiration for a lot of these, but any that really like st stick out to you? I actually would say it's almost in reverse that I'm kind of surprised that some people aren't diving more into it. It's kind of surprising. Yeah. There's kind of some really dope restaurants out there. And if you take a look at their list, there's like nothing natural, which kind of is mind blowing to me. Uh, but that's because I believe that those wine buyers or sommeliers that could be buying um, think that natural wine is too weird and too funky 
and they themselves maybe haven't explored too much in that world. But I'll give it up, dude. Spago has natural wine. Wally's has started carrying some natural wine. So maybe those are like the two kind of names that we all know that I'm like, yes, that is awesome. That's those are some like old school stalwarts too. So for them to do it, it's like, why can't some of the newer, you know, high profile restaurants do it? Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately there, it's about the person and who's buying. And there's going to be a lot of bias there. This is why we are sort of having developing an AI to help because that can help maybe take away a teeny bit of human bias that could actually be really affecting a restaurant um, in a bad way sometimes. Um, and so in this way, I assume that Spago, Wally's, they have some fresh blood in there and they are super excited about natural wine and they understand that conventional wine does really well for their customers, but they just really want to sneak it in to try to get maybe some of that, the new money, the, the kids, you know, that uh, have the incomes for Spago and, and uh, you know, like Post Malone, for example, you know, he, he goes to Wally's and guess what? He, he drinks natural wine and, and uh, yeah, you got to cater to your customers. Really? I mm-hmm. did not know that. Wow. That's uh, I'm, I'm surprised it's not blown up all over TikTok then. <laughs> totally. I know Dua Lipa has, has done some TikToking of natural wine. Those are, uh, that's a pretty good lineup right there already. So you don't need much more than that. So Good Clean Fun also has food. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. We, in the recent months, we've had to kind of tone down some of our cooking. Um, but we, uh, we have like a, a nice menu of, you know, everything from citrus marinated olives with chilies and rosemary, bread mm. and butter. We have a nice little Caesar salad that has a little kind of kick to it. Tomato and fruit salad with burrata and spicy honey, I think is really cool. And then um, our one thing that we're really just launched it last night, which is so crazy, um, that is going to be our really bread and butter here is baked ziti. Wait. Okay. So you're uh, all the menu items. I was, I was like, that makes sense. You know, you're, you're sipping on some wine. You're going to have some olives, some, some bread, some cheese. And then you hit me with the baked ziti. Where did that come from? So, you know, in the last two months, we've had to slow down some of our cooking because of certain restrictions. Um, and we were kind of famed for pastas and pizza. And so the baked ziti was a dish that we are able to actually execute um, under the restrictions. Um, and guess what? No one is doing it very well in the city. So we're going to make this our thing. I've never, I don't believe I've ever had a baked ziti out at a restaurant. Uh, and, and there's plenty of restaurants that you think could maybe do it, but it doesn't seem to be one of the dishes people gravitate to. However, I can see that being a massive hit because that whole like, you know, intersection between comfort food, nostalgia, but slightly elevated. I think you're on to something. I think baked ziti might be the next like, you know, chicken parm or something like that. Dude, big time. And, you know, we source, you know, very high quality ingredients. Um, and when you have this baked ziti, I mean, it's, you, you don't even know what to say. You just kind of shake your head because it is so fucking fantastic and it's so comforting. And a lot of times too, a lot of food is, if you track through history, a lot of it can be like economic based. 
mm -hmm. whether that's either price or style. And so I, you know, times are a little bit more challenging, I think, today and moving forward. And so I think something like Bake ZD is really going to help um, soften the blow of the world and its challengings for a person in that moment that just wants to enjoy something that's super delicious, comforting um, alongside, you know, their wine. All right. You heard it here, folks. First, folks, get to good, clean fun, have some baked ziti and a nice glass of natural wine. I'm sure Ian will be there to, to steer you in the right direction. So uh, you can't really go wrong. Ian, where, uh, where do you enjoy eating in Los Angeles besides the baked ziti at good, clean fun, of course? Oh, man, there's, there's a nice couple places. Uh, just recently, Dunsmore in Eagle Rock. Oh, yeah. Fantastic oh, yeah. spot. Yeah, oh, just yeah. nice, classic, a little bit of Southern touch in there. Um, it, that's a restaurant that uh, you don't need to be all complicated, you know. What else comes to mind? Let's see here. Uh, Dudley Market, those are good friends of mine. Uh, they have a, done a fantastic job with their menu and their, all their seafood, you know, kind of options there. Uh, and my favorite in town is is still Key Spaka. That's your favorite restaurant in town, huh? That's my favorite. What about it? Believe it or not, I've actually, uh, I've still never been. It is, you know, because there's Osteria Moza, which I think is a, an amazing romantic, or you have a business meeting, those kind of things. Um, Pizzeria Moza, I think is like super fun. Um, and then you get over to Kispaka, and, and to me, this is really, um, it just seems a lot more food oriented. Like you're specifically there for food. We're like Osteria Moza and Pizzeria Moza. It's for the food, but the drinks and the atmosphere and all those things. Kispaka, um, the, the atmosphere is maybe a little bit more toned down and it's all about the food and the focaccia di Recco mm. um, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Basteca Florentina, the you know, milk roasted pork loin, they have a pork tomahawk. Their use of fennel pollen on, on a lot of dishes is always fantastic. Um, oh, and then one that comes immediately to mind, Mother Wolf. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, food was cool, but they their design is oh, yeah. out of here. Totally, totally. I, I think it's one of the – it's beautiful place to eat. Very beautiful. It kind of reminds me of like the wind in Las Vegas um, and it just nailed down Hollywood. Uh, Horses too, I think is, is a cool little spot and they're just designed. They just nailed down Hollywood. And, and I think that's just, it's just like super fun and, and we're in Los Angeles and this is Hollywood. And so having these places give you some Hollywood-esque-ness is great. Hundred percent. Yeah. No. I, I've had my uh, opinions on Mother Wolf in the past, but I can one hundred percent agree on the fact. Beautiful, gorgeous place to eat, and it evokes that old Hollywood feeling in a in a magical way. And you're right there. You're right there, like between Sunset and Hollywood. So definitely, if you got out of town guests or something, it is a place to wow them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Let's go out of Hollywood and out of Los Angeles for a moment because sure. in, in reading up on you, I read that you're a fan of the good old road trip and you've taken a couple road trips past the border into Baja. And I mm -hmm. want to talk about that. What Tell me about your road trips down the, down the coast, all the way down the coast. Yeah. I just, you know, you start drinking Beachy, which is located kind of 20 minutes outside Valle de Guadalupe. Um, 
And yeah, I just kind of, I had no idea where Mexican wine country was. Had no idea something was happening. I was reading about Baja and Valle de Guadalupe came up. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then when you look it up, you're like, wait, what? I can drive there? It's only like three and a half hour drive. That's it? That's it? Oh my God. So, you get, I mean, it's like going to San Luis Obispo, but in the other direction. Exactly. And what's really rad too is you get down there to Tijuana. And to me, okay, I would say I'm not as experienced in tacos in LA and I have my doubts, but I'm more than welcome to get suggestions. But the Tijuana taco scene is so dope and I've been to some great places. So that's a great spot in the middle. And then you go down, you know, down the highway and you're going past, you know, Rosarito, then you're down to Ensenada um, and then you just shoot east to Valle de Guadalupe and boom, you're there. Is it is it just all highway the entire way pretty much? Yeah. 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 We got lost in Tijuana one time and and that we got to some weird places, but <laughs> for the most part, yeah. That's I mean, I think look, I think a lot of people when they hear road trip down into Mexico, uh might be a little, you know, squeamish. Uh sure. what would you say what would you say to folks who maybe are like, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh what would you say to help them get over that fear? Well, this is Baja, California. It's a little baby kind of strip. Um, it's still the West Coast. So everyone's so chill. Everyone's relaxing, enjoying the weather. Um, so there's nothing to worry about. Everyone's having yeah. a good time. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's now on my bucket list, so I got to do that. And once you make it out to Valle de Guadalupe, what are some spots you absolutely have to check out? Well, definitely the restaurant scene. Uh, Fauna is definitely like a, a top restaurant that was completely just, I feel like I'm a little critical on restaurants. Um, I was blown away. And, yeah, and you are. You, could, you just said LA's tacos are meh. So <laughs> I think that, that that counts as critical. And honestly, we're going to have some listeners getting in the comments, I oh, think. Oh man, I know. I'm scared. I'm scared. Um, but uh, all open ears. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be... Uh, Changed my mind. I'm, I'm so down. Um, so Fauna was great. Deckman's, they do some outside cooking, which someone in LA is actually doing some outside cooking. And I've heard some similarities between them and Deckman's. Hmm. Um, um, let's see here. So those are restaurants. And then there's actually a new wine bar with music venue that just opened called Bloodlust. I haven't been yet, but it looks absolutely fantastic. They did a really great job on the place and everything looks good. Um, and then... Uh, this year, Vina Cava started doing some natural wine. It's a really kind of awesome, fun spot to check out. You can go over to Tecate, um, Beachy, go visit Noel, um, La Casa Vieja. Uh, his name is Humberto. He's, uh, he has his vineyard. Go check out. I um, mean, he has ostriches too there. Wow. Have, have you seen an ostrich in person? I I don't believe I have. I they, I I think I would see one and be like, "Is that a dinosaur? What am I looking at?" Dude, exactly. I I saw it and I was like, "This is so strange." These crazy big ass dinosaur legs, and then this bird sitting on these dinosaur. Legs. <laughs> really fascinating. Yeah, but That's it's nuts. funny because Humberto was making fun ostriches. They're actually one of the kind of the dumbest creatures on the planet. Their brain is really super small, and so. 
They're not very bright. That's uh, well, they're bright enough to live in Baja, California, which is very uh, sounds like a beautiful place. Well, I got a question for you because I was at a restaurant recently here in Highland Park, Amigo More, a fantastic restaurant actually. Mm. It's uh, it's giving like bistro vibes, but their food is like Italian meets Mexican, but with absolutely no gimmick to it. And they only have wine and beer right now, but they had a wine special. And they said, this is champagne from Falle de Guadalupe. And all we were all like, wait, 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 what? I thought champagne was only allowed to be called champagne if it was from the region of champagne. Okay, so technically for rules, it does have to be um, from champagne. The only thing I can imagine what's happening here is a someone in champagne went to Valle de Guadalupe and made a champagne style sparkling wine. I see, I see. <laughs> Technicalities, yeah. but that's, yeah, got it. Interesting. And I guess if you wanted to, if, if this restaurant wants to in Highland Park, just put it in quotation marks and then be able to explain like, hey, technically it's not champagne, but it's it's essentially champagne. We just can't call it champagne, but it, yeah, yeah. That sounds like maybe what happened because the way it was pitched to us too was this was kind of a first uh, for yeah. Via de Guadalupe that it was you know not something they'd done there before. So sounds like maybe maybe your intuition is correct. Who knows? Just put everything in quotation marks. L.A. doesn't have good tacos. <laughs> he did that in quotation marks, dear listener. No, Ian, seriously, I'm going to have to take you on a taco crawl here, my man. What's Where have you been having tacos that suck? Maybe that's what I'm secretly wanting. Maybe I'm going to talk a, you know, a little smack about the tacos, so I secretly want someone to take me on a, a, a crawl. Maybe that's honestly what it is. I, you've come <laughs> to the right place. I, I now <laughs> will not be able to sleep until I've taken you on a taco crawl. And if you want to pack a couple of bottles of natural wine along the way, I won't say no. Perfect. <laughs> Ian, what, what can, where can people find you? Where can people find uh, Good Clean Fun? And do you have any upcoming events or anything that people should know about? Yeah. So we're located in downtown at 868 South Olive Street. We're basically a block away from Whole Foods. Um, we're open uh, seven days a week. We start drinks at noon. Uh, food starts at three. And then we kind of end around 11-ish at night. Um, tomorrow is actually the, my co-founder's uh, birthday, so we're doing a nice little party for that. Last night, we hosted a winemaker, a local guy, Anish. He had three of his wines. Um, but we have a lot of stuff kind of coming up. And so, you know, if everyone just goes and follows us on Instagram at GCF Wines, um, they can kind of see what's all happening. But we're, our programming is going to get a lot. Um, we're filling up the calendar in these next couple months. so. It's going to be a fun time. Sounds like it's going to be a hot GCF summer. Mm, exactly. <laughs> I said it, you didn't, so you don't have to be embarrassed. <laughs> thanks so much for joining. We got to have you back sometime. Luca, thanks so much for having me. I, I can't wait for our next conversation. I feel like we could talk hours and hours and hours, and maybe next time, let's do it while drinking wine. Or while running. We didn't even get to talk about running. Oh. <laughs> you know, okay, very quickly... I've done 10 marathons and every time I've read was that the previous night, you should actually, if you do drink, uh, please continue to drink because there's nerves that happened the night before. And this is a great way to calm the nerves. Well, as you can imagine, 
I have partaked every single time more than I probably should. Um, but that's, I guess, just me and how I operate. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so next marathon, we should actually go eat and, and drink prior and we're going to feel amazing the next day. More power to you, dude. I've never, I don't think I've ever drank the night before a marathon, but maybe that's what I've been doing wrong all along. You're, it would be great to split a bottle, um, but just be wary because someone like me is probably going to want to maybe like, ah, let's just do one more bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. I am yeah. down. Sounds like some good, clean fun to me. Ian, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to Ian Asbury and, of course, as always, Father Saul. If you like what you heard, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at the LA Countdown on Instagram, TikTok, and even threads. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find us at LA Food Pod on Instagram. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D. We'll be back next week with another episode.